0: Hey, everyone, and welcome to another episode of Lever Time. I'm David Sirota. On today's show, we're going to be talking about the recent wildfires in Hawaii, which nearly wiped out the historic city of Lahaina, and they've killed over 100 people, and roughly 800 people are still missing as of this recording. These fires have devastated communities on the island of Maui. Uh, Many people have lost their entire homes. While fires like these are the result of climate-fueled extreme weather events, Some people are now saying what happened in Maui is also the result of underserviced utility infrastructure. For today's interview, we're going to be talking with Kenyela Ng, a former Hawaii State Representative, and now the National Director of the Green New Deal Network. Kenyela speaks with us about what needs to be done to protect Hawaiian communities from disasters like this in the future. And we also talk about the landmark climate lawsuit in which Maui County is right now suing the fossil fuel industry over its role in the climate crisis. That lawsuit preceded these fires. For our paid subscribers, we're also always dropping bonus episodes into our Lever Premium podcast feed. This past Monday, we shared our interview with historian Harvey Kay and progressive activist Alan Minsky about the unfinished business of FDR's Economic Bill of Rights. Harvey and Allen have been advocating for a 21st century economic bill of rights and they explain why it's needed now more than ever. If you want access to our premium content, head over to levernews.com and click the subscribe button in the top right to become a supporting subscriber. That gives you access to the Lever Premium podcast feed, exclusive live events, even more in-depth reporting. And you'll be directly supporting the investigative journalism that we do here at The Lever. I'm here today with Lever Times producer, producer Frank. Hey, Frank.
1: Hey, David. I feel like I haven't seen you in a minute. How you been? What's what's going on in Sirota land?
0: Uh, I've been traveling, been working on a uh, bigger project that's taken me a little bit away from the the news cycle, which I'm actually um, happy about because the news cycle seems to be uh, mostly doom and gloom right now. Or not really doom and gloom, I guess um, mostly fires fires and more fires. I guess fires and flooding, mm-hmm. you could add to that. Uh, the California flooding, of course, happened this week as well. It's, it's it's a pretty sad state of affairs.
1: I just saw some of those photos from Palm Desert. And I, I lived in Los Angeles for over a decade, would you know regularly jaunt out to Palm Springs and Palm Desert. I could not recognize Palm Desert. I was blown away by those photos. If you've ever been to Palm Desert, it is just a desert. So the, the idea that Massive amounts of flood water could find its way into that valley. I just, I was blown away by those photos.
0: Lots of rain all at one time in a desert is a scary thing flash flooding is a real uh, really really scary thing um, it, it's they have a, an exhibit here at the uh, at the Denver Aquarium where they simulate a flash flood
1: yeah that sounds super fun I kind of it's I like kind a, of
0: eye rolled it like how can you simulate a flash flood and it's actually super terrifying they they have this kind of wall of water come at you and it's of course it's it stops before it gets to you but you you get a sense of how how horrifying uh, it can be I was actually uh, right after we had seen that, exhibit, Emily and I were actually hiking in the desert and a thunderstorm came over and we like sprinted back to where we were staying. I was I was super terrified of it. So I, I'm, I guess I'm surprised uh, in the sense of um, the fact that a hurricane or a tropical storm hit the desert. In some ways, I guess I'm not surprised because it's the year of climate change and I guess anything goes, but I'm not surprised to have seen uh, what a lot of rain does to a desert. Now, speaking of california before we get to our interview today i want to talk about a story that we reported at the lever this week about a huge climate fight that is actually happening in california uh, under the radar Uh, it's a it's a story of how the fossil fuel industry is trying to uh, big shocker stop a good piece of legislation and it's a really important piece of legislation whether or not you live in california Here's what's going on. In the next few weeks, the California State Assembly is expected to vote on a landmark climate transparency bill. This bill would require thousands of large companies doing business in the state to fully disclose their carbon emissions, which because California is such a big state, it would effectively set national policy. Most major companies do business in California. So whatever California decides to do – Regulatorily, that can set standards for the whole country. Now, if this measure passes, all of those huge companies will be required for the very first time to calculate the carbon emissions that occur across their entire supply chain, not just those involved directly in their day-to-day operations. So they're going to have to account for all of the carbon emissions that are involved in not only creating their products, but getting them to market. And and so that is a much bigger form of disclosure than we've ever seen. Those indirect emissions, they can account for nearly 90% of a company's total carbon footprint.
1: So David, would it be right to say that these companies would have to account for all of their business, not just in the state of California, but all of their supply chain business across the country and potentially the world?
0: That's right. And so if you are a company that, let's say you're uh, developing a technological product that is manufactured, let's say, overseas, your company in the United States or in California does the design. Um, you're, it's produced overseas and then shipped to customers all over the world. You can't just say that your carbon emissions are the emissions from, let's say, your office. This kind of bill would say that you have to account for all of the carbon emissions in creating the product, in uh, shipping the inputs to create the product, in shipping the product to market. That's where a lot of those emissions are from. Now, California Governor Gavin Newsom, the Democrat, he has yet to weigh in on this year's climate proposal in his state, this big disclosure bill. A spokesperson told the lever that Governor Newsom plans to evaluate the bill if it reaches his desk. So he's not even saying that he won't veto it. He's he's not saying much of anything. Now, here's the kicker, which I'm sure you can guess. The fossil fuel industry and other industry groups have been lobbying against this bill and have been spending millions of dollars in an attempt to block the legislation. It's the fossil fuel industry. It's also other kinds of companies. We reported earlier this year that In-N-Out Burger, as an example, uh, was involved in lobbying on this bill, right? So big companies that have carbon-intensive products, many of them also don't want to have to tell the public their carbon footprint. So far this year, industry opponents have reported spending more than $7 million on state lobbying efforts that included attempting to influence, weaken, or kill this piece of legislation. Those opponents, as I said, they include oil and gas companies, cement and asphalt companies, airlines, uh, Coca-Cola, Costco, as I said, In-N-Out Burger, Pepsi, Rite Aid, Walmart. So it's huge companies don't want to have to tell us what their real impact on the climate crisis really is. They want to keep that hidden. And Frank, my thing is, look, some industries are more carbon intensive than others. The whole point of this bill is that we should at least know the lay of the land. I mean, I guess I'm not surprised that there's this lobbying against it. But if we can't at least get to disclosure, how are we ever going to get to a serious climate policy? Right. Part of the disclosure issue is to know where carbon emissions are really intense and are really happening so that we can adjust policy correctly to reduce those emissions.
1: Yeah, that's the part that boggles my mind, is that this isn't even a law that would require these companies to reduce their emissions. It's just to tell us, just tell us what you're doing over there. I guess it's not surprising these companies are going to push back on anything that regulates them for the most part, uh, anything that might eat into their margins. But it's really galling, especially right now in this moment in 2023, which I think like we've seen the accelerated adverse effects of the climate crisis. And it it really feels like we're at that kind of moment where it's like, get on board and start helping out. I'm I'm curious how long companies are going to be able to get away with stuff like this before there is like actual real public pushback against them.
0: California is a democratic state. The legislature has a Democratic supermajority, so whether or not this bill passes will be up to Democrats in general, and probably it will come down to a handful of Democrats. The fact that Newsom is staying out, I mean, that is not a good sign. That is not exactly a profile in courage. And and he has done some decent things on climate, but, but in this case, staying silent, again, not exactly a profile in courage. And you can bet that this is going to come down to a handful of Democratic legislators in Sacramento. And it will have, I want to reiterate this, it will have massive national implications if this bill can pass. Good implications, again, because every big company does business in California. There aren't big companies that have the luxury of being like, hey, we're not going to do business in California. So if California mandates this disclosure, frankly, it will create global policy. We are going to continue to report on it at The Lever, so check our website at levernews.com. Okay, let's stop there because we should get to our main interview with Kenyela Ng about the wildfires in Maui and the county's lawsuit against big oil. That's coming up after a quick break. Welcome back to Lever Time. For our main story today, we're going to be talking about the recent wildfire in Hawaii. On August 8th, A wildfire swept through the historic city of Lahaina on the island of Maui, reducing almost every building to ash and killing over 100 people. If you've seen photos or videos of the fire and its aftermath, it is truly devastating. More than 800 people, as of this recording, are still missing as emergency responders address the crisis, while many Lahaina residents lost their entire homes and more. At The Lever, we regularly report on the destructive effects of the climate crisis and the ways it has been exacerbated by the fossil fuel industry and its allies. And what happened in Maui is the direct result of those forces. But there is some slightly good news here. In 2020, Maui County sued a number of oil companies like Exxon and Chevron over their role in the climate crisis. Maui County's lawsuit accused the oil companies of knowingly making the crisis worse through the selling and burning of fossil fuels and through a, what they call in their court filings, a coordinated multi-front effort to conceal and deny their own knowledge. So for today's interview, The Lever's news editor, Lucy Dean Stockton, spoke with former Hawaii state representative and national director of the Green New Deal network, Kanyela Ng. Lucy speaks with Kanyela about current conditions in Maui. They also talk about what can be done to prevent tragedies like this in the future, and they talk about how Maui County's landmark lawsuit against big oil could change the game moving forward.
2: First of all, Caniella, um, thank you so much for taking the time to be here with us today. We're gonna to be talking about a few things today. We'll be talking about the lawsuit, about Hawaiian Electric and private utilities, um, But before we begin, um, I first just want to say how sorry we are for what the people of Maui and Lahaina are experiencing. Truly, our hearts go out to you and the communities there who are still very much suffering through this tragedy. Thank you again for taking the time. Before we get into everything that's happened in Maui over the last couple of weeks, I want to go back a little bit and set up some context for our audience. This wildfire isn't just a story about climate change, it's also a story about colonialism and capitalism. Um, would you mind telling us a little bit about Hawaii's history and how we've arrived at this point?
3: Sure. Yeah, so, well, where do we start? Yeah, so Hawaii wasn't always a state. Um, many folks don't consider it a state. The U.S. themselves have admitted an apology resolution in 1992 of that it was illegally overthrown. And our history uh, is deeply rooted in this town of Lahaina, um, before our state, before our territory, when we were the kingdom of Hawaii, it was our capital. It wasn't the tinderbox that it is now. It was a lush wetland. Um, but at the turn of the 20th century, uh, sugar barons, far right American businessmen, oligarchs uh, diverted water illicitly um, from Lahaina to irrigate the land they stole. Um, that you know for monocross for sugar, and what was once a place of bounty uh, of the world's earliest aquaculture systems. We had local IE, uh, like the earliest fish ponds uh, that, that sustained us. But, you know, once once the water was taken away, it became uh, a dry and, and dangerous place for disasters like these. So the descendants of these sugar barons continue to have oligarchical control in some ways over our economy and government. Uh, Alexander and Baldwin, those are two of the original, quote unquote, big five missionary families uh, from Centuries ago, uh, and today, it's that's the largest corporation and landowner and political donor, or among the top uh, on on Maui. So, uh, you know, it it persists. They they get vast profits off of uh, the diversion of our of our resources and control of our politicians.
2: I mean, you're really seeing history play out in these modern systems too, and. Um, I guess, can you also tell me, like, there is what many people liken to sort of a new form of neo-colonialism is Hawaii's tourism industry. Can you talk a little bit about what that looks like on the ground, how it's changed the islands?
3: Sure. So as they diverted water away from kalo farmers and family farmers, um, they built subdivisions for new residents moving into Maui and they built hotels. And, and then they say, well, we can't give you water back because this community relies on it, so they pit you against them. And we can't give you water back because uh, this hotel and therefore all the workers and the union that represents those workers uh, wouldn't appreciate that. Uh, so, you know, it's like uh, you're stuck in this, in, in this bind where that you're pitted against other members of the community. And in tourism, with tourism in particular, time and time again, like every time Hawaii seems to make national news and gets this this spate of media, um, it's around crises like these. Like last last time I had to make the rounds <laughs> through the circuit was when uh upcountry Maui where I'm from, uh people were getting charged five hundred dollars fined, five hundred dollars for water in their lawn during a drought while the hotels continued to have their water slides and fountains or pools were filled. And it's just like that; those gross symbols of um, uh, second-class citizenry where the people who uh, play here and see Hawaii as their playground are treated um, better by our government that we fund than 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 the citizens um, and right. people of Hawaii. So you know that that plays out time and time again um, in different ways.
2: And you said also, I mean, that people um, aren't able to water their lawns. Um, can you also talk a little bit about how the ecology of the area has changed?
3: Yeah, Lahaina was once a lush uh, wetland with um, sprawling local ponds. some of the early earliest uh, systems of aquaculture where you could take a boat around the famous Wyola Church, which, you know, unfortunately burnt down. Yeah, that that water was diverted for hotels and and monocrops by the original colonizers, and uh, yeah, now our our economy, uh, which is stood up by the pillars of tourism and land speculation, um, can only function uh, with, with with the diverted water. So um, you're caught in this bind. Uh, but both tourism and land and real estate or land speculation are paradoxical in their nature they rely on preserving Maui's natural beauty and resources but also developing and destroying them Uh, so it's inherently uh, unsustainable and as much as politicians like to talk about diversifying our economy their actions speak otherwise with uh, you know the state government still subsidizing the marketing budgets for multinational hotel conglomerates um, in the form of the Hawaii Tourism Authority. So, you know, it's in order for a new industry to pop up in this capitalist system, um, uh, something to sunset, and through our subsidies, we're, we're really picking winners and losers. And when we and when we choose to subsidize uh, tourism, uh, we all lose.
2: Wow, no, that's um, that's a really important way to talk about that paradox between these industries that economies ostensibly need, but the industries that are also hurting the communities that support them. Just to return quickly, so you've mentioned how the landscape has changed, but there's also been a lot of scrutiny on Hawaiian Electric, um, the privately owned utility company that provides electricity for, I think, 95% of the state. State lawmakers and county officials have been raising the alarm for years that Hawaiian Electric desperately needs to update this infrastructure to adapt to these increasingly extreme weather events. But we've seen that they've actually been, there's been really slow movement from the utility company. And I also just want to note that um, two major shareholders of Hawaiian Electric are the private equity companies, Vanguard, and the other is the largest asset manager in the world, BlackRock. Um, Can you talk a little bit about this infrastructure and how it contributed to the fires?
3: Sure. Uh, So no one's rooting for HIKO to collapse locally. HIKO
2: is what it's colloquially known as?
3: Yeah. So no no one's rooting for Hawaiian Electric or as we call it in Hawaii, HIKO. Uh, to collapse because they're uh, seen as like a very rooted uh, local company. My, my grandpa worked there as a dispatcher for 45 years and, you know, we're a working class family. We don't have, like my mom, was forced to sell our house on Maui. We got pushed out without a fire. You know, the fire just uh, accelerates these injustices. Um, So there's no wealth in our family aside from Kiko stock that my grandma has in her retirement account. So, you know what well, it's it's sad uh but at the same time i think folks need to realize first of all that the, the colonial history of hiko um, but also the modern version of hiko it's like a local veneer like they'll they'll hire the most rooted community members to do their pr and community relations but the, their shareholders tend to be out of state with very little stake or even interest uh, on our islands so um you know that's <laughs> another uh, conundrum that we have that we're facing now. You know, when I was a state legislator, for example, um, it was clear that HECO's model of buying or generating and selling power um, was unsustainable and not, uh, it, it disincentivized like the clean energy transition. If they were to just operate as a grid management system and allowed the proliferation of rooftop solar for example we, we would have, we would be much much farther in you know, our renewable energy goals but you know they ended in their metering and they uh, tried to monopolize uh, the solar and wind industry and once the coal plant shut down on Oahu uh, just recently they ran ads using ratepayer money um, to blame renewables <laughs> for rising costs' um, we're, you know, our electric bills right now are around $600 dollars. Which I think
2: is the highest in the country. Is that right?
3: By far. Sometimes two or three times higher than the second place. <laughs> second place. Like it's a contest um, a rate. But the the wild thing is like if you, you'd be hard pressed to find another county with $1.4 million median housing price uh, without underground power lines. Let alone ill-maintained power lines to the point where 70 mile per hour winds would just blow them over. Um, and You know that's that was the case with Lahaina. So like on on one hand you'll see Hiko doing a shareholder meeting with with the private equity firms talking about record profits um, while we're paying six hundred dollars a month um, and with like quote unquote third world uh, infrastructure. Uh, So you know that's another vestige of our colonial past. And if they invested in our infrastructure like they should, given how much we pay, uh, the fire would have never been never spread uh, the way it did.
2: Right, and they've known as early as 2019 that fire was an increasing risk on the island and across all the islands. They said they've spent hundreds of millions on equipment replacement and vegetation management, but they haven't even put them underground. Is that right?
3: Yeah, and I think it's important for folks to understand that this isn't just like a mismanagement, like bad decisions that were made. Uh, This is the same incentives that private utilities face everywhere. Uh, where it makes more sense to to try to get subsidies to build brand new facilities, and like the bigger the project, the better off it is for shareholders. Rather than actually f- fixing existing infrastructure, like that's an incentive structure that uh, persists across the United States. Um, so you know it's it's a systemic problem, and simply you know I mean executives should be held accountable, but you know you get rid of one CEO, uh, and the next one will come in and do the same thing. So there needs to be um, like Uh, demand from the people for systems change.
2: Totally. And this all comes at the same time that they're not necessarily um, investing in renewable infrastructure, which is obviously exacerbating climate change um, in Hawaii. I'd actually like to turn to climate change and what Hawaii, the state, Mm -hmm. is doing within the legal system to fight back against the fossil fuel industry. The state is very much on the forefront of taking legal action against big oil. In 2022, a group of 14 Hawaiian youth sued the Hawaiian Department of Transportation over its greenhouse gas emissions. And in 2020, both the Honolulu government and Maui County sued a number of oil companies, including Exxon, Shell, and Chevron. Could you tell me a little bit more about these lawsuits, the status of Maui's lawsuit, and how you think these fires may impact the case?
3: Sure. Back in 2018, 2019, I was actually uh, doing some consultant work on on this project of trying to get Maui and Oahu county governments to sue big oil for the climate disasters that, that they caused. And I'm encouraged to see that it's going through the system uh, taken up by the state Supreme Court. Uh, you know, we could use as much Vocal support for these lawsuits, uh, as possible. You know, I know some politicians are don't want to kind of involve themselves in the judicial system, um, as if there's a firewall, um, as if they haven't seen uh, how, like the Supreme Court of the United States, the top court operates. Um, but you know, now is the time. Um, if if you feel any conviction around a livable planet for not just our kids, but right now, it, it's time to speak up.
2: And just for our listeners, I realize maybe I should have prefaced that a bit more. But could you actually tell me um, about the, the youth lawsuits and maybe how they mirror um, the recent victory in Montana or the federal lawsuit happening?
3: Yeah, I mean, it, it's, it's remarkable to see the idea that there, there's these lawsuits happening, not just at the national level, but um, or at the federal level, but across different states in a, in a concerted national effort is important. But I will say that our history, especially coming from I mean, in, in Hawaii, where we won a lot of really monumental um, legal battles, including the public trust doctrine that, that mandates that waterways be kept private, it, it simply isn't enough. There's ways to, to skirt around it. Uh, we, we're not going to be able to, in the long run, have like the same scale and volume of, of like, expertise and volume of lawyers that these corporations have so you know while lawsuits are a great tactic uh, it's it, they're only part of a broader strategy of both uh, movement building um and without like a continued support of like impacted a base of impacted people organizing um, themselves and uh, activists and media shifting the broader narrative and and changing the p- political common sense of the populace uh these lawsuits will be rendered useless
2: right it, like it's essential to build that sort of climate climate friendly, legal infrastructure, but we also need to be operating on other levers of power and maybe even changing economic incentives. Exactly. And I'm wondering if we could turn to you. You're the national director of the Green New Deal Network, a coalition of 14 different organizations. Can you tell us about the work you do there?
3: Sure, so Green New Deal, something I ran on in 2018, there was a lot of, at that time, it was like, if you're into climate, the boldest thing you can do is support a carbon tax, and it just seemed to lack political imagination. It didn't have that inspirational quality, that like something positive to shoot for. It's like you know, people are bringing building their platforms around banning bags and paper straws and just things that people have to give up. And what was needed, I thought at that moment, was like a vision of like what what can we get, like what what. What better world exists on the other side of the clean energy transition? So, you know, Sunrise Movement, Youth Climate Strikes, it it just blew up uh, after the election of Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez and a bunch of really influential progressive groups, including labor, frontline groups, indigenous groups, big greens. Everyone's like, can we just put aside our differences and consolidate our power around the climate agenda? So we formed the GNDN. Uh, this is when I was with People's Action at the time. And uh, we're able to resource similar coalitions across 23 states and uh, figuring out where the levers of power are uh, in, in a moment in an election year and kind of drive the agenda of what the Build Back Better, once President Biden was elected, what Build Back Better would actually look like. Uh, so, we set a stake in the ground of a trillion dollars a year in investments that centered climate care, jobs, and justice. And, um, you know, of course, if you don't have 100% of the power, you won't win 100% of your demands. But we made sure we focus on the needs of the most impacted. And ultimately, it resulted in the passage of the Inflation Reduction Act. Now, you know, that bill isn't perfect by any means. There are harms in that bill that will actually um, hurt our communities. So, we've been focusing on like, uh, just implementation of the law, maximizing the goods, minimizing the harms, and also like introducing various Green New Deal bills and making sure there's public support um, behind them. Uh, and unfortunately, like a lot of the work that we're doing now and we'll be doing in the future is going to be around rebuilding efforts for climate disasters. So, you know, the, it, it's, it's heavy. Um, and I think the one thing that we continue to call for is to, straight up, President Biden needs to declare a climate, uh, climate emergency and ending fossil fuels, I mean, denying permits and then investing at least a trillion dollars a year moving forward. Uh, so far, uh, no candidate running for president on either side, um, including Democrats, have uh, have been campaigning on anything other than what they've already done uh, on climate, and that's that's not enough. Uh, you know, this this three degrees, four degrees of warming still catastrophic i used to talk about it in terms of like my kids you know will they have clean air and clean water (laughs) like that's not right it's you can wake up tomorrow morning and your community can be flattened your church you go to your kid's school the grocery store you shop at could be reduced to ashes tomorrow that's the urgency we're operating under and anything less than investing a trillion a year and ending fossil fuels now uh, is an insult uh, to all the friends and family um, and neighbors that we lost uh, in this fire a couple of weeks ago.
2: Again, um, it shouldn't take such an enormous tragedy to recognize the shortcomings of our system. And I know we've covered a lot of shortcomings on the Inflation Reduction Act, but I also um, I really appreciate the work that you do at the Green New Deal Network um, to build forward. I think it's really special to be assembling a coalition of everything from um, indigenous advocacy groups to unions to parties like the Working Families Party the Movement for Black Lives, housing justice organizations on a similar and aligned goal?
3: Thank you. Yeah, it's not, it's, it's difficult work and it, it takes a lot of trust building. And, you know, I think the, the speed in which the climate crisis forces us to operate isn't all conducive to that. So, um, you know, it it takes a lot of grace and uh, love for one another. And, you know, I encourage your listeners and anyone in in our movements, especially on the left, to understand that, like, just know who your people are and and keep them close and focus on the longer game. um, Because there are there are uh, people out there who are indifferent to our survival.
2: I think this provides actually a really nice segue, um, which is that lastly, if our audience wants to contribute to the relief effort in Maui, where should they go?
3: Right. So there's been some incredible outpouring all, all of support. Some of the bigger funds that are best poised uh, to deliver immediate benefits are also uh, the most likely to enable disaster capitalists to profit off of the disaster. So that's 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 been a challenge, but now that Red Cross is you know, and FEMA are out in full force, um, and people are moving from shelters to more permanent housing, the needs for like food and water have subsided uh, for the most part. Um, And we realize when disaster capitalists really strike, it's less about individual realtors calling families, and more about a year down the line when there's regulatory and political and legislative fights, including elections, that's when communities tend to get blindsided, because. The scale of rebuilding is $6 billion. So we can raise $20 million or, or so, um, but that's not going to cover it. It's going to have to come from government or private equity. We can't let that happen. But like, if it comes from government, um, who, who's controlling those processes and who ultimately benefits uh, is the question. Uh, so we've created, we banded together the most accountable funds that have been popping out, the most rooted, and created the Maui Recovery Fund. And that's mauirecoveryfund.org, where... Uh, there, there's more flexibility there where we're, we are giving a lot of direct aid we're also encouraging like direct venmos to to families but um understanding that this is going to be a, a marathon not a sprint and once the cameras are gone and volunteer um energy wanes we need to have something sustainable to actually contest power uh, at every level so yeah maui just recovery uh, uh fund or maui recovery um, uh, is 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 the place that uh, I think would be most impactful. And, you know, that, that includes like C3 funds and C4 funds where you can actually get political.
2: Great. That's that's wonderful. We will be linking that in our episode notes. Yeah. Thank you again so much for taking the time. I'm sure this is a really busy time for you. Kanyela Ng is a former Hawaii state representative, the co-founder of Our Hawaii and the national director of the Green New Deal Network truly thank you for being with us it was great to talk
0: with you thanks so much for having me and for caring about our home here in Hawaii that's it for today's show as a reminder our paid subscribers who get lever time premium you get access to this past Monday's bonus episode it's our interview with historian Harvey Kaye and progressive activist Alan Minsky about the unfinished business of FDR's Economic Bill of Rights. To listen to Lever Time Premium, just head over to levernews.com to become a supporting subscriber. When you do, you get access to all of Lever's premium content, including our weekly newsletters and our live events. And that's all for just eight bucks a month or 70 bucks for the year. One last favor, Please be sure to like, subscribe, and write a review for Lever Time on your favorite podcast app. The app you are listening to right now, take 10 seconds and give us a positive review in that app. And make sure to check out all of the incredible reporting our team has been doing over at LeverNews.com. Until next time, I'm David Sirota. Rock the boat. The Lever Time Podcast is a production of The Lever and The Lever Podcast Network. It's hosted by me, David Sirota. Our producer is Frank Capello, with help from lever producer Jared Jacang Mayor.